Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. Taiwan is one of the world's most tense flashpoints, and China has conducted many war games based on the scenario of an invasion. The People's Liberation Army says its forces are on high alert and will smash any move towards independence. This puts Taiwan's new president, William Lai, in a precarious position. He's a pro-Western politician who leads the Democratic Progressive Party. The election, which took place in January, was followed closely by the international media, with a focus on whether it might provoke China into a military strike. It was an interesting test of Taiwan's political system, as it only became a democracy some 30 years ago, after nearly four decades under the iron fist of Chiang Kai-shek's Chinese nationalists who came from the mainland in 1949. I'm very pleased that we have an excellent guest on the podcast today to analyse the election and consider Taiwan's future, as well as offer insights from the past. Dr. Gerrit van der Wies is a former Dutch diplomat who currently teaches the history of Taiwan and US relations with East Asia at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, in the United States. Garrett, welcome to China in Context. Well, thanks very much for having me on your program. It's an honor to be here. Well, let's start with some basics. Can you briefly describe for us how Taiwan became such a vibrant democracy and how the people on the island see themselves today and indeed where they want their country to go? Well, the modern history of Taiwan really started in 1945 after it was occupied by Chiang Kai-shek's Chinese nationalists. Before that, it had actually been a Japanese colony, but Chiang's nationalists, the Kuomintang, uh, took over and they only constituted some 15% of the population, uh, but severely suppressed the native Taiwanese, 85% of the population, who had inhabited the island for many centuries. So finally, after some four decades of martial law by the Kuomintang, the native Taiwanese were able to bring about a momentous transition to democracy. And since the early 90s, it has been a vibrant example of what democracy can be like in Asia, of course, to the chagrin of China. But one of the key elements of that democracy was that the people increasingly saw themselves as Taiwanese. Chang's nationalists had tried to install a sense of Chinese identity, but that gradually worn out. So at present, only some 3% of the people in Taiwan see themselves as Chinese only. And this newfound democracy also strongly changed the perception of where they want the country to go instead of being perceived as an extension of China in some fashion, they want to be accepted as a full and equal member in the world community, including the UN. So that's a little bit of history. Well, that's very useful context. Let's consider how China's responded to the election of Mr. Lai. The Taiwan Affairs Office in Beijing has said China will promote cross-strait exchanges and deepen integrated development. Yet it's also said that it would push for the great unification of the motherland. What are we to make of such rhetoric? 
Well, the problem is that the rulers in Beijing are really still fighting the tail end of that civil war that we just talked about, in which the Taiwanese themselves actually had no part, so it's rather unfair to them. But Taiwan's future is really still being held hostage to that civil war. So China is using carrots and sticks in order to force Taiwan closer to the mainland. They try to entice Taiwan into closer economic cooperation, in particular with Fujian province. But many Taiwanese really see that as a slippery slope towards forced unification. As we have seen, China is also using sticks, military exercises, incursions with Navy ships and jet fighters across the so-called median line in the Taiwan Strait, with disinformation campaigns in the elections, and stealing diplomatic allies away from Taiwan, as happened with the South Pacific country of Nauru. Well, I noticed at one point during the election campaign that Mr. Lai said to the other candidates, as far as the PRC is concerned, we're all pro-independence. Is that correct, actually, Garrett? Is the KMT, which is often referred to as the pro-China party, is that also pro-independence? Well, Lai Jingde is correct that all parties in Taiwan support the current status quo, under which Taiwan is a de facto independent country under the name Republic of China, brackets, Taiwan. The difference between the DPP and the Kuomintang is actually that the DPP wants to achieve that status quo through strengthening ties with the US and other democratic countries, so together they can keep China at bay. While the Kuomintang really believes it can strengthen the status quo by maintaining friendlier relations with China, and many people in Taiwan feel that is really wishful thinking on the part of the Kuomintang, that Beijing is really dead set on incorporating Taiwan no matter who is in power. And some feel that a Kuomintang win would actually have accelerated Beijing's timeline. Well, you know, I was in a discussion with somebody from Beijing yesterday, and I said that Taiwan's never been ruled by the mainland. And he said, what are you talking about, Duncan? If you go back into history, Beijing and Taiwan, the mainland of China and the island, have been united for centuries. You teach history. What's your analysis? Well, the facts of history are actually quite different. During the Ming dynasty, there was no Ming official presence in Taiwan at all whatsoever. In 1623-24, when the Dutch tried to find a foothold in the region in order to do trade with China and Japan, emissaries of the Ming Emperor Tianji even told the Dutch to go beyond our territory. And what did the Dutch do? They went to Formosa, where they built a fort, Fort Zeelandia, and actually established a flourishing colony. Formosa being the old name for Taiwan. Yes, indeed, yeah, given by the Portuguese who sailed by Taiwan on the way to Japan, but uh, they never landed there and they never established a foothold there. But of course, they had their position in, in Macau. But the, after the Dutch uh, left, the new Manchu emperor came in and they were 
actually not very interested in the island at all, Emperor Kangxi even stated Taiwan is outside our empire and of no great consequence. And he even offered the Dutch uh, to buy it back. And then from 1683 till 1887, the Manchu period, uh, Formosa was formally administered as part of the province of Fukien. But in reality, it was really a wild and open frontier. There were more than 100 armed revolts that took place during that period, prompting the observation in Taiwan that there was an uprising every three years and a revolution every five years. So the inhabitants really didn't view themselves as part of China, but viewed the Qing dynasty very much as a foreign colonial regime, not unlike the British colonial regime in India. And after that, Taiwan, of course, became a colony of Japan, which is, was for 50 years until the end of World War II. Yeah, well, you say it was a colony of Japan, and actually there was fierce resistance to that uh, Japanese occupation at the beginning of the period. 40,000 islanders were killed in the fighting. How do you view that dark period of history? Yes, during the first few years of the Japanese occupation, uh, it was rather dismal in Taiwan. Uh, but after that, after about 1910 and, and, and later, the uh, Japanese did a lot to modernize the place. They built roads, railroads, harbors, hospitals, and actually an excellent educational system. So Taiwan became very much a model colony for Japan. But then after World War II, when the Chinese nationalists came in, these nationalists of Chiang Kai-shek treated Taiwan as occupied territory. Chiang's officials were highly corrupt and very repressive, and they killed some 28,000 leading figures in society, mayors, doctors, lawyers, in the so-called February 28 incident of 1947. So comparing the previous Japanese rule with the incoming Chinese nationalists, the Taiwanese strongly favored a strict but fair Japanese rule. And those positive feelings really extend to the present, resulting in a lot of goodwill between the two countries, uh, though, of course, uh, the relations remain informal. Now, Mr. Lai has said that he wants to pursue a, a values-led foreign policy. How do you think that might play out in terms of the relationship with Japan now, then? For Taiwan, it is really an essential uh, key in the attempt by the DPP the past eight years by Tsai Ing-wen and the next years by Lai Chinde to expand international relations, uh, substantive international relations. So they have really done a lot to build up ties with Japan, uh, with Europe, with Australia. So they hope that altogether this really uh, presents a good united front vis-a-vis uh, -vis China in terms of defending Taiwan's democracy and uh, separate status. So you're in the United States. Tell us a little bit more about the attitudes of the Democrats there towards the Democratic People's Progressive Party of Taiwan. Well, in the U.S. Congress, there has traditionally been very bipartisan support for Taiwan, especially after democratization in the early 90s. It started in the 
early 80s, actually, with two senators, Claiborne Pell and Ted Kennedy, and two congressmen, Stephen Solarts and Jim Leach. And we jokingly refer to them as our gang of four in the US Congress. And they really voiced strong criticism of the old Kuomintang for its repressive rule and advocated an end to the Kuomintang's martial law. And this pressure from abroad, together with the grassroots pressure in Taiwan itself, helped bring about Taiwan's democracy. And since then, broad support from the US Congress has been given by both Republicans and Democrats, and they jointly supported measures such as arms sales and closer economic ties with Taiwan, and criticized Beijing's threats and intimidations against the democratic islands. So drawing on your knowledge of history, let me ask you a question about the future. Do you foresee a situation in which both America and China live in peaceful coexistence with Taiwan? Or is this an unresolved question, as China puts it, which can only be resolved by force? It's, of course, up to the United States and China to how to resolve their differences. But as far as Taiwan is concerned, we hope that both the U.S. and China can see Taiwan in its own right and in its own light, as I always say. We need to stop seeing it as a tail end of the Chinese civil war but uh, prevail upon the government in Beijing that the best way forward would be to come to a peaceful coexistence with Taiwan as two friendly neighbors and to accept Taiwan as a full and equal member in the international community. Well, thank you, Garrett. That was Garrett van der Wees from George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute, part of the University of London, And you can find out more about our courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team.